What do Lot, Samson, David, Solomon, Asaph, John Mark, and Peter all have in common? As far as I can tell, each of them were were and are true children of God, but each of them experienced periods of spiritual decline in their walk with the Lord. Periods of drifting away from the Lord. Periods of, as some might like to call it, of backsliding. Periods of spiritual atrophy and neglect. It's a reality in the Christian life. In fact, the author of Psalm 119, amidst all of his love and passion for the word of God, he prays, revive me according to your word. He's praying for God to enliven his heart, to awaken his heart, to give his heart life, even though he's writing as a believer. He sees the need for life to be revived according to the word of God. The Christian life can be filled with periods of of spiritual decline. Often this time of year we step on the scale and we notice that we've picked picked up a, a few pounds. We look in the mirror Shirts and pants that once fit a little bit better, a little bit too snug. And we realize we are out of shape. We we realize that there's been a period of physical decline in our life. and, And we often take measures to improve our physical health. To go on a diet. To buy a membership to a gym. Maybe somebody kindly purchased you an elliptical machine for Christmas, giving you a subtle hint. (laughs) Or maybe you requested it yourself. But either way, we understand what it's like to be out of shape and to then try to bring about change. In a similar way, this can also happen in a spiritual sense, and with our relationship with the Lord, we can have periods of decline. We can have periods of, if you will, of being spiritually out of shape. We can have seasons of backslidings. And so I want us to spend some time thinking about this important topic. Now, the term backsliding, I'm, I'm not a real big fan of, only because of the way it's commonly abused you know, somebody makes a profession of faith at age six, um, live like the devil for, you know, the next 30 years, and, uh, you know, and, and you ask their parents about their spiritual state, and, and they say, oh, they're a believer. They've just been backsliding, you know, for the past 30 years. And you're thinking, wow, you know, I think maybe your interpretation of the situation is a little bit off, Um it is a term that's abused, but nonetheless, at least in the King James Version, uh, it is a biblical word where God speaks of Israel having seasons of backsliding. 
And it is indeed a reality in the Christian life of having times in the Christian life of of spiritual decline. And, And just by way of clarification, that these the genuine believer does experience periods of decline, but this doesn't necessarily mean they've lost their salvation and they need to be re-justified and reborn again and re-adopted. They are secure in the Lord. As Charles Spurgeon said, the believer, likening salvation to a ship headed to heaven, the believer can fall on board, but he can't fall overboard okay so there's many times that a christian may be slipping and falling on board and needs to get to pick back up but the ship is still heading in that direction and will arrive at final destination stephen charnock says for a person to lose their salvation christ would have to be ripped from the bosom of the father And I would add to that that the Father would have to be ripped off of his throne and the Holy Spirit would need to be overpowered. So the genuine believer's salvation is secure in the Lord. But nonetheless, there can be seasons of spiritual decline. And so it is is an important distinction. There, There may be a flower that's drooping, that's still alive. We have this plant in our house that in different seasons, I was certain it was dead. And somehow it just starts growing again. You know, it's amazing what a little bit of water can do. And so it is, sometimes the Christian can even sometimes look like they're dead. But they are alive, but they need their soul to be nurtured. So we're going to do a little kind of diagnosis and then a little bit of prescription this morning. Some diagnosis of four four signs of spiritual atrophy, four signs of spiritual decline, four signs of being out of shape spiritually, if you will, so that you can diagnose yourself, and then, and then we'll look at some prescriptions, some counsel to help you out. First sign of spiritual flabbiness is indifference to the Word of God. Indifference to the Word of God. The Word of God, in the, in, according to the Scriptures, is itself often likened to food. It's important to have good nutrition. If your diet consists of candy canes and candy corn and Doritos and, and a multitude of other junk food, <clears throat> then you're not going to be healthy. You have to have good nutrition. And also, uh, one of the telltale signs of sickness is a lack of of an appetite, a person who's not hungry, who has no interest in food, who has no interest in eating, this is a sign of spiritual sickness. And so even when you look at Psalm 119, you can see the psalmist's attitude towards the Word of God as a very healthy attitude. In Psalm 119, verses 9 through 11 
He asks the question, how can a young man keep his way pure by guarding it according to your word? Then he prays, with my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have treasured your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. The psalmist says, I've, I've treasured, I've stored it up, I've hoarded it in my heart that I would not sin against you. His attitude towards the word of God was one of hoarding, storing it up. You know, the, the uh, food line during Christmas, you know, sometimes you'll see a child just keep taking something, maybe cookies, they keep hoarding them up. They have an appetite for cookies and often their, their eyes are even larger than their stomach. In a similar way, our attitude, our appetite for the word of God should be voracious. Psalm 119 verse 14, he says, I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. He's rejoicing over the word of God. Testimonies is a synonym for the word of God. Psalm 119 verse 16. I shall delight in your statutes. I shall not forget your word. Psalm 119 verse 129. Your testimonies are wonderful. Therefore my soul observes them. Psalm 119 verse 31. I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. I do not, do not put me to shame. And one more in verse 48, he says, I shall lift up my hands to your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. So here he's saying he he loves the word of God. And this, this is a healthy appetite, a healthy posture. And then on different occasions, the psalmist will compare the word of God to other things to highlight how much he loves the word of God. For instance, in Psalm 119, 127, he says, Therefore, I love your commandments above gold, yes, above fine gold. I mean, imagine if I told you that there was a five-pound gold bar Somewhere in this room, and if you find it, you could keep it. You guys would try to act spiritual, but you'd be looking around. The young people would be less self-restrained. But the psalmist says, I, I value your word more than gold, even fine gold. Psalm 119, verse 72, the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Not just a five-pound bar, but thousands of pieces of gold and silver. Maybe money's not your thing. Maybe it's food, like me. Psalm 119, verse 103, how sweet are your words to my taste, yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Honey, sweets, cakes, candies, desserts, 
yumminess. He says when he compares honey to the word of God, he says he, he desires the word of God even more than that. This is a healthy appetite. You see, because God is so closely connected to his word. 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17 says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God, or, or some of the translations say, is breathed out by God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. When you love somebody, you delight to hear their voice. You enjoy hearing them. You enjoy talking with them. You enjoy that communication. And that communication is necessary for that relationship. There's been seasons in my life with my wife when I've been out of the country, and this is some some of those occasions were before, you know, you could FaceTime somebody with internet access or Skype or Zoom or whatever, and there would be weeks where we may not talk with one another. And our relationship was able to withstand some of that lack of communication. But if that were to go on for months, for years, what, what kind of a relationship would we have? Not much. In a similar way, the believer feeds upon the word of God, delights upon the word of God because it is the voice of God himself and is the medium of God, medium in which God communicates to him or her. Job understood this. He said, I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. So, my friend, do some self-assessment. How is your appetite for the word of God? How is your soul being nourished with the word of God? And the word of God comes to us in the public ministry of the word as the word is preached, the public reading of God's word. But also we have the benefit in our culture, in our day, of access to the word of God through our cell phones, through the printed page, having our own personal Bibles where we could read, we can meditate, we can memorize the word of God. We can even listen to, to preachers of God's word outside of our own local church. Do we have a hunger for God's word? Are we feeding ourselves more upon the 24-hour news cycle than we are the words of the living God? Are we feeding ourselves more on entertainment and amusements than we are upon the word of the living God? Well, if you're realizing that your appetite for God's word is weak, then can I encourage you that you might need to begin to force feed yourself 
some of God's word. Because it is a, it is a strange thing in that usually, and we've experienced it this time of year, usually the more you eat, the more you don't want to eat, right? <laughs> you know, somebody offers you that second, you know, helping of dessert. <laughs> no, no, I, I, can't, I can't take any more, right? Um, but with the word of God, it actually works in the opposite way. The more you consume, the more you get an appetite for it. And the more you don't consume it, the less you have an appetite for it. And so if you're recognizing that you need to up your consumption of God's word, what are you going to do about it? Now's a good time to make a plan for the upcoming year, maybe a reading plan. It doesn't necessarily have to be going through the entire Bible in a year, but hey, it's a good goal, certainly if you haven't done that. To to make it a regular habit for you to be consuming God's word. Second, diagnostic test. Not only asking yourself, is there indifference to the word of God? Is there indifference to sin? Indifference to sin. Indifference to disobedience in your life. Not concerned about violating God's commands. Romans chapter 12 and verse 9 says, Abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. Abhor. I mean, that's a strong word. Hate, loathe, detest what is evil, cling to what is good. And one of the struggles I've noticed in my own life is I often hate evil that's somewhere out there or in other people's lives, but don't, don't hate the evil that's in my own heart. Don't loathe and detest those that those growing weeds of sin that are lingering in my heart and choking out my love for Christ. But Paul says, abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. And, and there, there's usually a kind of a, a pattern that takes place in the Christian life when it comes to this. There's often, it kind of starts with a frequent exposure to sin. We're... we're immersed in it it's all around us you you can kind of see this in the life of abraham's nephew lot right he he's exposed to the wickedness of the city of sodom and gomorrah he's constantly bombarded by the evils of society no doubt probably when when lot and his family first got to sodom they were they were probably shocked by it right they were appalled by it but pretty soon being appalled by it becomes being accustomed to it, even yawning over it. So that's no longer shocking. It's no longer serious. And we too live in our own Sodom and Gomorrah. Today, adultery is glamorized. All manner of sexual perversion is celebrated. Pornography is ubiquitous. They can't even do studies 
on the effects of pornography in people's lives because they can't find study samples of people who haven't been exposed to it. Jesus is blasphemed 24 hours a day. And this is the world we live in. Any kind of vestige of cultural Christianity is increasingly fading away in Western culture. And so then this usually moves to not only this frequent exposure to sin, to then a toleration of sin. At this stage, you become more and more accustomed to the sin that's all around you. And pretty soon, you're, you are engaging with sin. You're, you're flirting with it. You're engaging in a relationship with it. And pretty soon, there's a truce with sin. And, and, and then before long, there's, there's an all-out romantic relationship with sin. And you're in the habit of it, frequenting it. You think about the prophet Isaiah and his tender conscience towards sin in light of the reality of gazing upon the holiness of God. The prophet Isaiah, when he was called, God appeared to him in a vision in in the temple and he sees the Lord high and lifted up and the the seraphim are, are chanting, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And you remember Isaiah's response is, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell amongst the people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He has an an amazing awareness and perception of his own sinfulness. He sees the filth of his mouth and the filth all around him and he doesn't want it. And he desires to be cleansed, to be purified in God and his grace. Places that hot coal upon his lips as a picture of forgiveness and cleansing atonement. You see the same thing with King Josiah who sought to bring about reforms and change in ancient Israel. And, and, And when the book of the law was read to him, he tore his clothes and, and, and he was broken and repentant, realizing that he had sinned against the Lord in ways that he hadn't even realized. You see the same thing with Peter. Early on in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, Peter's out on... The boat, he had been fishing all night long. And Jesus from the shore instructs him, hey, put the net on the other side of the boat. You can imagine Peter, if not externally, internally rolling his eyes. But he does it. And sure enough, the net is filled with fish so much that the net is breaking <clears throat> and Peter finally gets the boat and the fish to, to shore 
and he comes and he falls before Jesus and he says, what? Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. He realized he had a heart of unbelief. He realized he didn't believe that Jesus had the power and authority to command the fish into the net. And he was broken before Jesus, confessing. That's the kind of tenderness of conscience that we ought to have towards sin. But often we just kind of muzzle our conscience. And that is a, a sign of not spiritual health. But of being spiritually out of shape. So, indifference to the Word of God, indifference to sin, indifference to fellow Christians. First John chapter 1 and verse 7. It says, but if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. We, we would expect him to say, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with God. We have fellowship with Jesus. But he says we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. So that those who are walking in the light, they have fellowship with other brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. First John chapter 4 verse 20 says, If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For no one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. For the, I'm sorry, for the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. You see what he's saying? You can see, the person who says, oh, I love God, and they hate their brother, John says, no. That can't be. Because those who love God are going to love other children of God. Oh, there may be squabbles. We experience this in our own family, right? You may have tiffs with your brother and sister, or, or, or as a parent, you may see your children bickering here and there. But you know when it's all said and done, they still love one another. They do. So it is in the body of Christ, in the family of Christ. There may be squabbles, there may be tiffs, there may be times where we rub each other the wrong way, but by and large, the heartbeat of the child of God is there is going to be love for your brothers and sisters. And an indifference to the people of God and the gathering of God's people is a telltale sign of spiritual flabbiness. The heart that's not excited to meet with God's people to see brothers and sisters in the Lord is not a sign of health. 
Jesus said in John 13:35, "By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another." By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. One of the telltale signs of being a disciple of Jesus is love for other disciples of Jesus. So again, ask yourself some of these self-diagnostic questions. Is there a desire to be around other brothers and sisters? Do you love to be around fellow believers? Do you enjoy the company of the saints? Do you love to serve in the body of Christ and to pour yourself out towards others? Or is it like a chore? Now, of course, there's always a danger of us being in our kind of holy huddles and never rubbing shoulders with unbelievers and being a light to this lost, dark world, you know. So we have Christian barbers, Christian mechanics, Christian restaurants, Christian... (laughs) But nonetheless, it should be the delight of our soul to be around other believers, And this should be a Godward delight. As we see other brothers and sisters who, who like ourselves, are, 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 are born again, are, are believers, but nonetheless, there's still the taint of sin. There's still the human weakness involved. But nonetheless, you're beginning to see that, that budding image of Jesus growing and developing in them and to be able to delight in them, to see that humility of Christ, to see that compassion of Christ, that love of righteousness, that heart for the lost, to see these attributes and characteristics of Christ shining forth in unique ways in different brothers and sisters in the Lord and to bless God and as you see Jesus in your fellow brothers and sisters. That's a sign of health when that's there, but it's a sign of poor health when it's not there. When there's no desire or love for brothers and sisters. Maybe you're, you are committed to, to come to the gathering, but you're one of those kind of come late, leave early Christians. You, you know, you just come in, do your time real quick, get your sermon, and then you're gone. <laughs> That's not a sign of health. I understand we all, you know, Sometimes have places to go, things to do, all of that. I'm not trying to overburden your conscience, but take the time to get to know other brothers and sisters, to be involved in their life, to to love others. So first sign of 
being spiritually out of shape is indifference to the word of God, indifference to sin, thirdly, indifference to fellow Christians, and fourth, indifference to Christ. Octavius Winslow says, when a professing man can proceed with his accustomed religious duties strictly, regularly, formally, and yet experience no enjoyment of God in them, no filial nearness, that means like family nearness, no brokenness and tenderness, and no consciousness of sweet return, he may suspect that his soul is in a state of secret and incipient backsliding from God. What Winslow is saying here is that when there's just this kind of going through the motions with no heart enjoyment of God, this is a good sign that you are in a state of spiritual backsliding, or as I'm calling it, spiritually being out of shape. 1 Peter 1.8 says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, but you believe in him, and you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Certainly the sign of a, of a good relationship is when there is love between two people. I always enjoy seeing older couples still showing affection towards one another. <laughs> and my wife and I will often look at one another and think, I, I hope we're like that when we're old and decrepit and falling apart. <laughs> that there'll still be a sweetness between us. So it's good to ask yourself, is there, is there love for Christ, the cherishing of Christ in your heart? Is there an excitement to hear about him through the read word, through the preached word, to gaze upon his glories when you, when you think, you know, this time of the year, of the, the wonders of the incarnation of, of this baby born in Bethlehem who's the eternal God who would come to this earth to die for you, to, to live this life for you, to sacrifice for you? Does your heart swell with thankfulness and love for him? Thank you, Jesus. Jesus, you did this for me. Or is it just yawning? Oh well. Can we get to the gifts? Can we get to the food? Do we really need to talk about Jesus? Do we really need to read from that passage before we do this? That is not a good sign of spiritual health, and it may be a sign that you're dead. You've never begun to have life in your heart. And so this would probably be a good point to pause if you think through these kind of diagnostic questions. Do I have, have I never had any hunger for God's word? Have I never had any t- 
tenderness of conscience towards sin in a Godward kind of way where I'm concerned about disobeying God? Have, do I have no love for other brothers and sisters in Christ? Have I never had any love for Jesus? If that's the case, my friend, then you've not yet been born again. And I'm thrilled that you're here. Because I believe in the wonder of God's kindness. He has you here this very moment. That your heart with these diagnostic questions is being diagnosed. That that you don't have life. And God's not going to shoo you away. God's not going to to, 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 uh, uh, say, you're not good enough for me. But if you would just but come to him and say, God Almighty, I, I, I have no life in my heart. I have no life towards you, but, but I kind of want it. And would you give me life? Would you give me a heart for you? And would you forgive me for my lifelessness and indifference to you and towards your people? Jesus, forgive me. And you trust in what Jesus did on the cross. And God will give you life. Life for the first time. He'll forgive you of all of your sin. He'll welcome you into the family. And all of a sudden, he'll infuse in your heart a desire to follow him, to love him, to know him, to love his people. All of a sudden, you'll be interested in the Bible. (laughs) Imagine that, this ancient book. You you, you maybe haven't read five books your whole life, but all of a sudden you have this interest in this book. He does that. He loves to do that. He can do it even this morning. Turn to him. So then what about, what, what, what kind of prescription can we give for this diagnosis of spiritual flabbiness? First of all, to identify your spiritual state. Are you in a state of spiritual decline or are you in a state of spiritual growth? Are your muscles being strengthened or are they being weakened? Christian life can at times be filled with a great time of harvest, but there can also be times of barrenness where it feels like you're just going through the motions. Be honest with yourself. Was there once a great hunger for God's word, but it's kind of fallen by the wayside? Was there once a great excitement to be with God's people and and to get to know other Christians and and to hear their story, to be involved in their life, but no, not so much. Was there at one point a a great tenderness of conscience towards sin and you didn't want to disobey your Savior, but now you've, eh, it's not that big of a deal. If you're in a state of spiritual decline, then you need to diagnose that. 
But if you're growing, then keep on. Keep at it. Keep pressing more. Pressing in. Secondly, if you are in a state of being spiritually out of shape, then diagnose the root cause. Often, backsliding or this state of spiritual decline is related to some particular sin that we are holding on to. We're nursing like a secret flash that we pull out here and there to take a sip. And we're not getting rid of it. We're not throwing it away. We're not emptying the bottles of whiskey. You think of David. What was the root sin of his spiritual atrophy for, for you know, almost a, a whole year running from God? What was a, an adulterous relationship that he sought to cover up? What was the root of Lot's atrophy? Evidently, it was a, a love for the world, economic prosperity. How about Solomon? Women? How about Peter? Fear of man? You're one of those Galileans, aren't you? No, not me. You're a follower of Jesus? No, not me. How about you? Is it sexual immorality, pornography, love of money, love of comfort, leading to laziness, some kind of intoxicating substance? Put your finger on it. God wants you to put your finger on it. Third, confess it and draw near to the cross. Confess it. Confess means to tell on yourself to God. Come to God owning up for your spiritual atrophy. Owning up to God for the root cause of that and your neglect of him. Psalm 32, verse 5, David says, I acknowledge my sin to you. In my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confess it to him. Again, he's waiting for you. Joel Beakey tells the story of a young person at his church who there was uh, evidently some kind of church event and there was candies out on the table and this child would secretly grab one candy secretly grab another one, 
kept going around, stuffing his pockets with all these different little candies. Well, by the time they get home, Dad looks at the boy and his pockets are bulging with candy. He says, son, that's stealing. You're breaking the eighth commandment. Those aren't yours. You need to bring those back to Pastor Beaky tomorrow. And you need to confess to him. Daddy, I, I, I can't do that. I won't do that. The little boy went to bed. Woke up the next morning. Dad says to him, son... Do I need to tell you again? You need to confess that to Pastor Beaky. I'm ready to do it, Dad. Well, son, what was the change of heart? Last night, I talked to God. I told God I did wrong. I stole all that candy that wasn't mine. And you know what? The Bible says that God forgave me. And I believe it. And I think if, if God can forgive me of my sin, if God loves me enough to forgive me, I think, I think Pastor Beaky will forgive me. And that next day he went and he confessed because he had already had dealings with God. Friend, do you need to have dealings with God this morning? Do you have hard thoughts of God thinking he, he's not going to take me back? It, it, perhaps you've even deceived yourself. If he but knew what I did, and he already does know what you've done. Uh, perhaps you're thinking God would never forgive you. But my friend, God is a God of mercy and grace. He's the God of the prodigal. That prodigal who thumbed his nose up at him and took his father's inheritance and went and spent it all in loose living. It was finally when that prodigal came to the point where he realized, I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against my father. I will go back to him and see if he'll just take me as one of his hired hand. And what was the posture of daddy when he came back? He lavished him with his love. He lavished him with his forgiveness. But also don't forget, it's the parable of two sons, right? The other one didn't even see that he had sinned. The other one said, I've served you my whole life, and you've never thrown a party for me. She's the prodigal who was reconciled to his father. But the other guy, the self-righteous one, self-righteous older brother, not so much. So friend, humble yourself, own up to your sin and come to this great God. He will forgive. 
and draw near to the cross because it is at the cross that the elder brother, the Lord Jesus Christ, has paid for sin. He's the one who nailed your rap sheet to the cross. So confess and draw near to the cross. Fourth prescription, kill the root cause of that atrophy. You must be ruthless. Whatever it is that is got a stranglehold on your heart for God, you need to not only confess it, you need to crucify it. You need to drive the nails through it. You need to turn from it. You cannot coddle it. You cannot nurse it. You must put it to death. If it is a lingering drift into pornography, a lingering flirtatious relationship, if it is a love of comfort, if it is a fear of man, you need to put it to death. If a person has a abscessed tooth, or an abscess somewhere in their body that's like a big sack filled with bacteria, you can practice good nutrition. You can get a membership to the gym. You can try to make sure you're getting enough sleep. But you need to lance that baby. You need to cut it And that nasty, infectious, stinky pus needs drained out for there to be healing. So, my friend, is there something you need to lance, to cut open and flush? J.C. Ryle, the Bishop of Liverpool in the Church of England, a reformational Anglican, says grace is a tender plant. Unless you cherish it and nurse it well, it will soon become sickly in this evil world. It may droop, though it cannot die. The brightest gold will soon become dim when exposed to a damp atmosphere. The hottest iron will soon become cold. It requires pains to bring it to red heat. It requires nothing but letting alone or a little cold water to come become black and hard. In other words, what he's saying is... Uh, to be in a, in a state of spiritual unfitness, all you have to do is nothing, right? I mean, we get that in our own physical lives. Just don't exercise. <laughs> Just go through life and you will be unhealthy. But if you tend to your physical welfare, if you tend towards your spiritual welfare and deal with those things that are causing a hindrance, cutting out the cancer, cutting out the infection, then this will tend towards health. Fifth prescription, pursue God in his word as if never before. 
Pursue God and his word and, and, and I would say all the mediums that you can. Pursue God and his word and the public ministry of the word. Pursue God and his word and your personal reading and devotion to the word. Pursue God and his word through prayer. I mean, this is what we see over and over throughout Psalm 119. The, the entire psalm is the psalmist talking to God, but, but, but there's a clear connection between his talking to God and God talking to him through the word. Psalm 119, verse 37. Turn my eyes away from vanity and revive me according to your ways. Psalm 119, verse 25. My soul cleaves to the dust... Revive me according to your word. Psalm 119 verse 36. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Psalm 119 verse 40. Behold, I long for your precepts. Revive me according to your righteousness. This combination of word and prayer, word and prayer, word and prayer. You see, because it is God who uses his word to feed our souls, to enliven our hearts, to nurture us. And he's the one who does it. This is why it must be accompanied by prayer. John Owen says, it is so. If love of the world, conformity unto it, negligence in holy duties and coldness in spiritual love be in evidence of such decays, then, then let none deceive their own souls. Wherever there is a saving principle of grace, it will be thriving and growing unto the end. And if it fall under obstructions and thereby into decays for a season, it will give no rest or quietness until the soul wherein it is, but will labor continually for recovery. Peace in a spiritual decaying condition is a soul-ruining security. Better be under tear on the account of surprisal into some sin than be in peace under evident decays of spiritual life. In other words, don't be content. Don't lie down in your season of spiritual decay, but earnestly seek God and his word. Psalm 119.38 Establish your word to your servant as that which produces reverence for you. Your word has revived me, Psalm 119, verse 50. Psalm 119, verse 93. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have revived me. This is what Peter's admonition to the churches that he's writing to in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 1. He says, crave the pure spiritual milk of the word that you may grow in respect <clears throat> to your salvation. Crave the word of God like a baby wants milk. That's how we should pursue God through his word. That's the way back to spiritual health. It's not going to happen on accident, it's not going to happen by osmosis. You just put your Bible under your pillow. 
There's no kind of IV hookup. I can't read your Bible for you. I can't memorize scripture for you. I can pray for you. But you have to resolve yourself. There's a story of Robert Robertson. I'm sorry, Robert Robinson. During his early teen years, he lived in London where he mixed with a notorious gang of hoodlums. And at age 17, he attended an evangelistic meeting where the famous George Whitfield was preaching. Robinson went for the purpose of scoffing at those poor, deluded Methodists. And he ended up bowing his knee to Jesus by the end of the meeting. Soon he felt called to preach the gospel, subsequently became pastor of a rather large Baptist church in Cambridge, England. Despite his young age, Robinson became known as an able minister, scholar, writing various theological books, several hymns, including one hymn he wrote when he was just 23 years old. Sadly, Robinson wandered away from the faith, much like the prodigal son, journeyed to a distant land, until one day he was traveling by stagecoach, sitting beside a young woman who began singing a hymn that he had wrote wrote some years earlier. One of the lines of the hymn you may be familiar with. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Take and seal it. Seal it to thy courts above. Let's pray.